stop enjoying this gathering thing so much. I mean, yeah. No, it's marvelous. It's wonderful. Now, uh, our formula right now happens to be what's on the screen before you. Some of our numbers people, when, when somebody came to me and said, Barry, love you, pal, but you really don't know anything about numbers and, and math, it shows. Because actually, uh, it's not an equation. An equation has to have an equal sign, apparently, with equal things on both sides. Didn't do the math thing real well, went into the whole, you know, uh, <clears throat> English side of things. So I understand this to be a formula or a statement of inequality, which is perfect. It's exactly what this is. In Hebrews, this author is trying to show us the inequality of anything that we think is good and all that God has defined as greater So, in chapter 7, we're looking at this priest of God and his eternal priesthood is greater than any human mediation. And in these chapters, 6 through 13, we are taking it to the next level. Are we ever taking it to the next level this morning? You're going to be wishing you stayed home. (laughs) No, you're not. You're not. You're going to be glad. But we are taking it to the next level. In these areas that I've listed, these R's, first of all, in terms of receiving, and now we are walking through this relationship part of things. And then we'll get to rest and resilience and and, uh, resistance. But the receiving part was about us and God's promise. And our response to that, understanding it, trusting it, acting on it, and that must be first because you need to be changed by God's promise. But not so that life becomes about you, but rather that He changes your life. Life in general is about others. And that's what the Lord said and gave us an example. He came as the Son of Man not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And that is why we take it to the next level in terms of relationships. First of all, receiving His promise. Now, relationships. And I've talked last week and I'm talking this week about what it means to have this next level relationship with Christ. We spent two weeks on that. Then I'm going to begin to talk about relationships with each other. We're going to spend three weeks on that. Because there's a lot involved in that. But you better get number one. Or you won't be willing and ready or available for all that comes in number two in our relationships with each other. So this is extremely important for, under, for us to understand, of course, our relationship with Christ. What does that look like? Well, as I said last week, he has to be absolutely unique. And we talked about Abraham versus Melchizedek. He first has to take apart our heroes. For you, he has to be absolutely unique, without rival. That's why we went to commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Who's your hero? It's okay to have them in a box. It's not okay to go to that box when you're in need. Your deepest need is fully met in Jesus Christ and Him alone. He has to be absolutely unique. And He has to be enough. Christ is Melchizedek, a completely different system. And for you, He has to be perfectly sufficient. He has to be enough. He has to be without suspicion. So I went to story number one. That of Job, the oldest book in the Bible. 
in which we learn the first lesson. Brace yourself like a man. I'll question you. You answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Would you clench your fist and say it's not fair? I have to be enough, completely sufficient, says Christ. And we ended with this thought. We can have our human heroes, but they all fit in a box. None of them is unique, nor is any one of them sufficient. To the only wise God be glory through Jesus Christ, now and forevermore. And that's not just a nice way to end a service, a benediction. It's a blessing. It's a word of praise. It's worship to the only one worthy. Which brings us to this week. What does it look for us to take our relationship with Him to a whole nother level? It means He's absolutely unique. He is completely sufficient. He's enough. And this week, He is worthy. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. He is worthy. Really? We say that so flippantly. We sing, you're worthy. We worship by saying, oh God, you're, you're worthy. What does that mean? To really consider Him worthy. Well, that means praise and honor. It means obligation. It means loyalty, devotion, obedience, surrender. It means a lot. (laughs) I mean, we, like the Hebrews that... He's writing to here. We, we don't mind respect, a little bit of honor, perhaps even a, a form of veneration. Abraham was an amazing man. He did what most of us would not do in the same circumstances. But that doesn't make him worthy of all that I just listed. Praise and honor, obligation, loyalty, devotion, obedience, surrender. Yet that same Abraham, some people's hero... He worshipped Melchizedek. Taking my Christian life to the next level means a relationship with Jesus Christ that far surpasses that of a Savior that I need to live. And it becomes a life of surrender and service to the one I cannot live without. That's what it means. 
take this relationship that I have with Christ beyond that of a mere Savior, if I can put it that way, that will help me live, give me eternal life, allow me to go to heaven. goes far beyond that. becomes a life of service and surrender to one that I cannot live without. That I am desperately dependent upon every single minute. And in that desperation, I find love and grace and mercy and goodness and care and provision and power and strength and gifts. And because of all of that, He is worthy of all that I am, all that I have, all that I do. Wow. That's a whole lot more than Going to church, (laughs) doing something for God, checking off some list of noble accomplishments in the name of Jesus. It's way beyond some kind of spiritual, personal bucket list. So in order to willingly practice that kind of worthy surrender and service, You need to know that that's actually what this Bible is asking of us. So let me show you. Because if I'm calling you to do what I've just described, you better know that he's worth that. So let me show you. What happened? This was worship. You see... For this to be clear, all we need to do is plainly read two passages of Scripture. These two accounts. First of all, the original story that the author in Hebrews here is referring to. He just refers to it here, right? Uh, This Melchizedek went out to meet Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. Well, what is that all about? Well, if we go back to Genesis chapter 12, and I'll just scroll through this. You can open there if you want to and kind of follow it. But in the beginning of chapter 12 is where God first calls, then named Abram, out of Ur. Now, there are three things that jump right out of this story. Two of them I'm going to camp on. One I want to speak to for just a minute. They are worship and wealth. Those just jump right out of here. And then there's one more. The immigrant heritage of our faith. So if I could just step out of what I'm talking about this morning and, and, and show you something here. This is extremely important. It's another, it's, a, it's family time making its way into the message. It's very interesting that our faith in its very heritage is by very nature an immigrant faith. A kind of pilgrimage. Um, it's not unusual for us to find a whole metaphor of a refugee in all that we read in Scripture. After all, uh, he took Abraham from one land and brought him out as an immigrant into a land that wasn't his, that he was going to give him. Um, and, and then he brought him, a, he used him to create a whole nation that later, of course, found itself as immigrants in, in Egypt and then came out and pilgrimaged through the desert for all those years, unwelcomed strangers actually, until they were given the land that someone else was living in and then had to conquer it and make it their own. Jesus Christ himself came into this place, was not accepted. A pilgrim in this land. He actually spent some time as a refugee in Egypt, remember? Hmm. 
In Acts chapter 17, it tells us that out of one man, God made all the nations and he determined where all of them would live, moving them from place to place that some might seek him. Why do I tell you that? Because in your bulletin, there's an announcement for something happening on the 5th of March. It's a symposium on immigration, on immigration hope. And is that ever a hot issue in our society today? Our Association of Churches is wrestling with this. And Scott Millard's going to take some time next week to tell you more about it. I just want you to stick it on your calendar. We're wrestling with what it means for us, those that have come out of this kind of immigrant heritage, to minister to, in the way that God has called us to, those that are immigrants in this country, whether they happen to be legal or not, documented or not. What does that mean? Think about it. Now I want to go back to our passage. Oh yeah, and stick it on the calendar, 5th of March, you get a lunch, you know, and all that kind of thing. Come and listen to what it's all about. Two more things that jump out of this passage as we walk through this story of Abraham is worship and wealth. He's called out of Ur, and there he's given this promise that he's going to get a new land. And then interestingly enough, Scripture tells us he takes all his possessions. Why did he say that? Yeah, a bunch of stuff, apparently. And then he reaches the promised land, and the first thing he does is he builds an altar, and he worships in chapter 12, verse 7. Then in chapter 12, verse 8, he goes to another place called Bethel, and there he built another altar, and he worships. And then he goes to Egypt, and now the story kind of turns a little dark because he lies about Sarah being his sister, and he gets Pharaoh in trouble, and so on and so forth, and he really doesn't act the way he's supposed to as this called man of God. Uh, But it's interesting that The Bible happens to note that there he acquired many possessions. Again, the wealth comes out. Finally, he returns to God and returns to the promised land and returns to Bethel, that same place of where he built an altar, and he worships again. And he and his nephew Lot that have been together are just getting more and more stuff. There's so many of them, the land can't even support them. So they divide in half. Abraham, he was just pick one you want. Lot takes the best land and he goes all over there. And the Lord then says to uh, to Abraham, look over here. I'm going to give you all of this. There's all this wealth. And he then again in chapter 13, verse 18, worships. Now we get to Genesis chapter 14. What the Hebrew author has been referring to that I just read a few minutes ago. What's happening is there's a war going on between a number of different kings. One of those kings is the king of Sodom, where his nephew Lot had gone to live. And they're fighting and so on and so forth, and Lot's tied into this. Abraham doesn't want to be a part of it, but his nephew's in trouble. So he goes and he rescues Lot. He actually routes these kings. He wins the battle, and he comes back with all of the spoils. Once again, all this wealth. He returns from victory in chapter 14, verse 17. And the king of Sodom meets him with all of his plunder. I'll come back to that in a minute. Then in verse 18, Melchizedek comes out and he blesses him in the name of the Most High God. And Abraham worships. It says he gives a tenth of all of the plunder. And notice, now the wealth and the worship come together. And he shows the worth of this one that he worships by giving of his wealth to say, you are worthy. This is worship. Let me prove it to you. 
Because he's been doing it all the way along. Every time he gets to a place that God speaks to him and God provides for him, he worships. And then the king of Sodom, I said I was going to come back to that. The king of Sodom sees him give a tenth to Melchizedek. And so he says, yeah, um, I'll tell you what. <clears throat> uh, you can keep the plunder, just give me the people. And actually, Abraham gives everything back to the king of Sodom. He says, I don't want any of your stuff. And he says in verses 22 through 24, I have sworn to God most high. When did he do that? He just did it when he worshipped him. By saying, this belongs to you. All of that stuff doesn't belong to me. That's yours, king of Sodom. You can have it. He uses the same word, God most high, that is used to describe Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 7. What he's doing here is exactly what Jesus said. He gives to Caesar that which is Caesar's stuff. It was his after all. He'd only gone to save Lot. This belonged to Sodom. You can have it. Uh, I don't want it. But he gives to God that which is God's. Recognition. A tenth of everything. He gives of himself. And he says, you are worthy. And he worships. The other passage that we just read plainly is now Hebrews chapter 7, where I was. And notice, this, as I read that, wasn't so much about the tithe, but it's about Melchizedek. It's about his worth. It's about his greatness. It's about his eternality. It's about his righteousness. It's about him being the king of peace. It's about worship. Abraham worshipped the one who was worthy, and he gives of his wealth to the one who has blessed him, giving out of recognition to God what is God's. He gives of himself to the only one who is worthy. This is actually what happened. This is worship. Now, I want you to see who he's worshipping. That's what he did. He worshipped. Now, look at who he's worshipping. Melchizedek, who is worthy. If you didn't have father or mother, who might you be? If you didn't have a beginning or an end, who might you be? If you had what is called an indestructible life, who might you be? If you are compared to the Son of God in all of your eternality, who might you be? If you received worship from Abraham, who might you be? If you are as the, the greater blessing the lesser, the passage says, who might you be? If you are the priest of the Most High God, the same term used by Abraham to speak of the one he swore to, who might you be? If you are called righteousness, if you are called the King of Peace, and those same terms are used in Isaiah 9 to describe the Messiah, who might you be? If your, your name is later used repeatedly to establish Jesus as the Son of God, who might you be? 
If you are said to have an indestructible life, and later Jesus is found to be the only one of all humans to die, and then to be raised from the dead to never die again, who might you be? That's why Jesus is called the firstborn from the resurrection. Others had been raised from the dead before, but they all died after that. Only Jesus died, rose from the dead to never die again. Who is Melchizedek? He is worthy. I believe he is the Son of God. And that would make him worthy of worship. And that means praise and honor and obligation and loyalty and devotion and obedience and surrender. It means everything. Abraham worships Melchizedek. He gives to him a tenth of all that he has, saying, this is recognition for who you are and all that you have blessed me with. He raises his hand and he takes an oath and says, no king's going to make me rich. You are my God. Taking my Christian life to the next level means a relationship with Jesus Christ that far surpasses a Savior that I need to live and becomes a service and surrender to one I cannot live without. In order for you to willingly practice that kind of worship, you need to know that's exactly what the Bible asks for. And it does. Now, let me apply these truths then. If my relationship with him is to be one where he's absolutely unique and he is enough for me in every way and he is worthy of my worship, what does that mean? Let me offer three things. But any one of these and all of these will only work if they are based on relationship. Don't try and do this if you don't really know Him. Because to do so is simply to strive to be better and do good things which don't accomplish anything. However, if we, like most of us in this room, claim to have this living relationship with Christ, that relationship can drive us to this kind of worship, really to a level far beyond Maybe service or surrender we've ever practiced before. Relationship alone will define this. If he is worthy, this requires all that I have. He is my king. Not the king of Sodom. He is my king. Abraham gave one-tenth of all that he had. And this was before the law was written. Remember, the law came with Moses. So we have this discussion among ourselves that we're under grace and we're not under law anymore. We don't have to give the tithe. That was something that had to do with the law. We're under grace. This began long before the law. The tithe is not tied to the law. It was included in the law, but it doesn't tie to it. This is more than descriptive. I believe it's prescriptive. This is worship. And I believe it's required. No, you don't have to do it. 
No more than you have to obey in any way that he calls you to obey. But who is the poorer for it? Your growth and God's blessings are directly tied together. Obedience brings both of these, implicit or explicit. You cannot outgive God, but you can limit His rewards. Do you know that? Paul says in, in Corinthians, everything is permissible for me. So you're right, you don't have to. But not everything is beneficial. Huh. So you don't benefit if you don't do what you're asked to do, told to do. You see, God's blessings are directly, and, and your growth, are directly tied together. And you cannot outgive God, should you think, I haven't got the money to be able to do this. But you can. Because my story over and over again is every time I stretch myself and try and give a little more, all he does is bless me with more besides. Sometimes that, sometimes that blessing doesn't look like I think it's supposed to look. But as I look back, I realize I've been provided for in every way and above and beyond. But you can limit how God would want to bless you by holding back. This is worship. It's a part of life that is meant to be expressed in praise to the one who created you. Worship is why you were created, and that means worshiping Him in every way possible. And for some reason, giving a tenth of all that we have is what we struggle with most. And the irony of it is so terribly sad, because it's one of the ways that God brings His richest blessings. He is blessed by our giving to Him, which He then uses for His purposes. And you know what? When you do it, here's the irony. He just gives it back again. He wants your blessing only so that He can bless you all the more. But it is a step of trust, isn't it? It's taking it to the next level. I know that's true because I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if I asked, how many of you give God 10% of everything that you have? I'd be willing to bet my 10%. So then I'd have to give 20 because it still belongs to Him, right? that I wouldn't see every hand in this room. Why not? Because this is a step of faith. That's tough. you got to be kidding. Okay, so is it gross or is it net? Who cares? Start with one and grow to the next. Because the more you do it, the more He blesses. Do you want to grow? Take your relationship with Christ that much farther. Is He worthy? Is He worth it? Is he worth that much that I could share a mere tenth of what I have? You still get 90%. I dare you. Actually, I promise you, if you had the faith to do that, if you go from net to gross, I already do it, you know, but the tax thing, forget it. I dare you. Actually, I promise you, because God promises blessing for those who obediently worship him, In this way. Oh, only relationship will define this. 
And if you don't do it, you're cheating God and you're cheating yourself. It's not about the law and grace. It's about worship. If He is worthy, this requires all I have because He is my King. And He doesn't tell you to give you 100%. He asks for 10. Now, for some of us who are growing in this and have been giving 10%, we love the blessing so much, we keep pushing the limits. And we kick it up a little more and a little more. But not because I want to pat myself on the back. I'm not going to tell you how much I give. I can tell you that I at least do that. But we keep trying to eke it up. You know why? First of all, because He's worthy. Secondly, because the blessings are amazing. In the end, it's not a discussion about whether you should tithe or not. Whether you have to. The question is, are you willing? Is He worthy? Another act of application and relationship again here will only define this. If He's worthy, this requires all that I am. He is my priest. If He's my priest, that means He's my advocate, my intercessor, my defender, my righteousness. And that kind of advocacy, that kind of person that stands and represents me as, as, as my righteous one, as my defender, as my intercessor, as my advocate for all of the foolish things that I do, that calls for surrender and transparency and openness and honesty, declared dependence. God isn't a power to be appeased. He's a person to be known. And the only way to do that is to deepen your transparency and honesty and openness with Him in a relationship like that. If He is worthy, it requires all that I am. He is my priest. Am I willing to share myself with Him like that? Finally, relationship alone will define this. If he is worthy, his worth, he, this requires all that I do because he's eternal. Only what is eternal truly matters. All that I do, as I talked about before with the rope tied to that inner place, that place where we're going, right? It's all connected. It's all tied. It should be tied to all that lasts. My life, my work, my service, my time should all be tied to that value. What's going to last forever? It should shape it. It could, should continue to direct it. It should eventually define it. I do what I do because this is going to last forever. Because what I want to invest in is what goes far beyond my foolish little immediate world. This life is not just about now. It's inextricably connected to the eternal I was sharing with the men yesterday as we were uh, struggling with the Beatitudes in our study yesterday morning. I have been called to minister in places most of the time with people who, like you, live in comfort, myself, live in comfort without many physical needs. Don't know why, but I thought I was going to Africa. God didn't send me there. Sent me to the rich and the snobs and the stuck up and the wealthy and the, everything else. And I'm one of them. I've always been in places like that. Two truths are very, very difficult for people like us to get. First of all, 
your need for a Savior. Because you don't think you need that much. (laughs) Right? That's number one. That's tough. I mean, really? Am I that bad? I think I do pretty good. No, number one is salvation. Difficult to get across when we basically find ourselves relatively happy. The second one is close, though. And that is valuing all that is eternal. Life is so good here, we're not convinced it's going to be that much better there. Be honest. What do you think heaven is? We're floating around on clouds and playing harps. Okay, Helen, I love you playing the harp, but I'm not sure I want to do that in heaven for the rest of my life. That's what you think heaven is. It's so much more than that. But we're so comfortable here, we're not convinced it's going to be all that better there. These are battles we must wage. Because If He is worthy, He's worthy of everything I do and what I do should be inextricably connected to all that lasts forever, not what will not last. If He is worthy and He is, this requires all that I have. And He asks you to demonstrate that by one-tenth of all that you have. That's worship. If he's worthy, and he is, then he requires all that I am. And he wants that kind of surrender and transparency and open honesty and declared dependency that deepens a relationship with him as a personal God that wants to know you and wants you to know him. All that I am. And if he is worthy, then it requires all that I do that I focus and grow in my walk to make more and more of what I do and what I'm involved in and where I use my time and my values and my energies and my efforts and my gifts to make sure that they're connected to that which lasts forever. So, let's take these truths and apply them in another time of worship this morning. We're going to ask the gentleman to come. And we are going to worship at this table because he is truly worthy. What we celebrate this morning is a great way to do that. So allow me, if I can, if I may, to take us to another level in our understanding of the table as well. Can I do that? You know, we're in chapter 6 through 13. We're going to the next level. So let me use some big words. Can I do that? Gentlemen, you come as I'm talking. I'd like to explain this. Again, for many of you, this will be new. This will be familiar. For others, it'll be new. It's okay. I want you to learn what all that this means. We come here to declare His worth. What Christ Jesus did on the cross of Calvary because we're sinners and we need to be forgiven. Well, what did he do? We remember what he did. The first thing he did was he substituted for us. He went to the place where we belonged, 
The wages of sin is death. You deserve to die for your rebellion against God. But He substituted for you. He stood in your place. He steps in. That's substitution. But that's not enough. He had to do more. Secondly, He bore the wrath of God that you should have borne. That's a big word called propitiation. Well, when are you going to ever use that again? Well, you can impress people if you can explain what propitiation means. Propitiation just means for God to be favorably disposed towards me. That He's pleased with me. That's what it means. For God to be propitious is to be favorably disposed towards me. Well, the only way that could happen would be for His Son, the perfect sacrifice, substitute, to bear the wrath that I deserved. And He did. That's called propitiation. He takes the wrath. But then that wasn't enough either. Then he paid the price. That's called redemption. When you redeem something, you pay a price and it becomes yours. And that's what he did. He paid the price. So substitution, propitiation, redemption. Now he bought you back. Then the last one's just fantastic. Reconciliation. He now brings you back and restores the relationship. He takes us from where we are to where we're going to be. He reconciles all of the books and all of the accounts. And you are not found wanting because you have been purchased by the perfect substitute who bore the wrath and returns you into, restores you into a perfect relationship with Christ and into that perfect world that someday He will allow us to enter in the name of His Son. So we're here to worship because of those reasons. So we reiterate our need. The men are going to come in a minute and they're going to pray and the bread is going to be distributed. And I would like you to quietly, personally, reiterate your need. Be willing in all of your sufficiency and wealth and relative happiness. Tell him once again how much you desperately need him. Thank him for it. Worship him for having done these things for you. If you can't say that you can do that, well, then you need to do it right now. All by faith you need to do And say, I get it. You substituted for me. You bore the wrath of God for me. You paid the price that was enough for me. You have reconciled me with the Father. And you did that for me. Believe that in faith. And He forgives perfectly and completely. And then you too can celebrate this. Then when we distribute the cup,